You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Church, grab a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians and follow along uh, with us. We're going to continue in our series, uh, which we have titled Hope Shaped Holiness, where we're going to walk through the two letters to uh, the Thessalonians uh, that Paul wrote uh, to them. And if you are not a follower of Christ today, this is an opportunity for you to see what we are about and to see uh, what God has said and how we are called to live out this glorious gospel that he has given to us. And uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in, in the pew in front of you. You can grab it and turn to page 1046 and follow along with us. As we start, I want to ask the question, how should we, as a church, do ministry? How should we do ministry? Now, let me uh, make sure that we're on the same page. All of us are called into the ministry. Not just me or Pastor Ryan or Nate. We're all called into the ministry of the gospel. We see this very clearly when Paul writes to the Corinthians in the second letter in chapter 5. He says we've been called into the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. That we partner together with God to bring reconciliation to the world. We also know from Ephesians that we as a church were given the gifts of people like leaders to help us do the work of ministry. So we are all called to do ministry. But the question still remains, how are we to do ministry? And I wonder if I could pick all of your brains quickly, how many different ideas could we come up with and what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to run things? What are we supposed to do during the week? Was there all kinds of good ideas? But God is much more concerned with how we do ministry than what we do or how in ways that we do it. The motivation that actually is flowing out of our hearts and into the lives of each other and to the lives in our community. There are lots of great ideas. There's lots of great execution. But how does God's Word shape how we are to minister? And I think coming here to this second chapter shows us this. First of all, as I told you, you are called to ministry. It comes with being called into salvation. We all have a job to do. But secondly, if there is a guide to ministry, let's find it. Let's look at it. It may not be cool. It may not have light shows. It may not draw the biggest crowd, but it's transformative. And what we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is we see a model of ministry, not one to hold out or make a big name for Paul and his team or to make a big name or a big show. It's, what it is is them giving their lives over to the sake of the gospel for the sake of people who did not know the gospel, who may have even rejected it at first. We see a transformation happen here in the Thessalonians and their lives and what they do. And so as we walk through this 
uh, most of this chapter. Here's what we're going to see. Paul describes their ministry to the Thessalonians and holds it up as a model for disciple-making. So in some ways I'm using ministry and disciple-making interchangeably here because I want you to see that that's our task. And this church is beloved by Paul and his team. And so what are we to do? For those of us who've been called by Christ into the ministry, what are we supposed to do? If you've made a profession of faith and now are walking out that faith, what are we to do? Christian ministry must aim to please God while trusting Him to transform us and those we serve. Christian ministry must first and foremost aim to please God and then rely, trust in Him that He may transform us and each other and those around us. And what Paul does is he holds up this ministry model. He holds up their ministry, and it corresponds to the life of the church. He talks about what they did and now what the church looks like. And he talks about how they evangelized as they shared the gospel in word and in actions. And Paul holds up his ministry so that the Thessalonians will continue in the faith and that they may not lose hope. That God is doing what he said he would do. And although in chapter 1, Paul, yes, affirms their faith and believes they have hope in Jesus, Paul is most concerned with their faith and their hope wavering. So he reminds them, this is what ministry looks like. This is how you continue to hold the faith with pure motives and true lives powered by the gospel that you say you believe. And so as we start this morning, Paul is going to provide four illustrations. Four illustrations for us to model ministry after. Four illustrations to model ministry after. Number one, minister like a wise steward. Minister like a wise steward. And when you minister as a steward, you have to know the source of your gospel. And as Paul begins the main body of his letter, he takes the time to remind the Thessalonians that their time was not in vain. Look there. He says, our visit was not without result. And they know the gospel works in their lives through Paul and company by they were empowered by God despite suffering. They, the Thessalonians, have now continued in the faith that Paul handed to them. And the emphasis here is on the character of the preacher's And not the results. Why? Because sound character produces credible results. And this is Paul's aim. The effectiveness of their visit is actually in spite of suffering and opposition that Paul and Silas and Timothy encountered in Philippi. They suffered against gospel opposition. And they were treated outrageously, you see there, that they were physically and emotionally beaten and embarrassed. They were held out as public examples, beaten. Don't do this. And actually, Paul, as a Roman citizen, there was no Roman due process, and this embarrassed them, not just individually, but publicly. Needless to say, these missionaries, they came into to the Thessalonians in a less than ideal condition. But look at verse 2. Paul says, we are emboldened by our God. This, their suffering, their embarrassment was met by what? The power of God. 
And they did not have to hide their embarrassment. And Paul understands that the source of his power, he knows it comes from God. And God is the source of confidence and supernatural courage in the face of any circumstance. So what did God empower them to do? He says there in verse 2, to speak the gospel of God in spite of opposition. And it was the very God who strengthened them who made up the content of the message, the gospel of God. Or they preached to big crowds, they met one-on-one, they met in small groups, any way they could. They proclaimed the beauties of a God who sent his own son into the world to die for us. Now that son was raised, he had the power to raise him from the dead. And notice this preaching, this evangelism is not an easy task. It goes against what the world wants, does it not? It goes against what the world says. And this causes opposition. It causes friction in the world. And this word opposition here, what it's saying is Paul saying there's a literal gathering of people who are going to stand against the gospel. And they stand against you. They stood against us. Church, we desperately need the power of God to work. We must know that we are not powerful or strong enough on our own. We must know where the strength comes from. But if we're really honest, I'm not sure our day-to-day lives look like that. Because if we continue in our own way, in our own rhythms, in our own schedules, without thinking one bit about the God that we need, then what are we saying to Him? What are we saying to Him if we never pray or never read, never want to know Him and know where this source of strength comes from? We must know. Because Paul here, he says, He knows. I know where this power came from. So He knows the source of their power. But He also, as a wise steward, knows the standard that's held up. He knows the standard. And he shifts away from the source of their strength to now how they are to live. The standard of the gospel that they preached matters for their lives. Look there, verse 3. Our exhortation did not come from error or impurity. The message they preached was one that had a moral standard. And the preachers couldn't live in opposition to the message that they proclaimed. And this was normal for speakers of their day who would want to draw a crowd. They could just say what they wanted to and live in a different way. But Paul says their motives and their methods were pure. He says, in fact, there was no intention to deceive the Thessalonians at all. The missionaries were not hustlers. The missionaries were true and pure in what they said and what they did. Now, we must understand Paul's Theology and the implication that follows. Right? God works. And the power that He works in is tied to the integrity of the messengers in their lives. We cannot expect Him to work if we discredit Him by our actions. Integrity is not an accident. Our lives must match what we preach parents in the home we must show our children that we believe in a powerful gospel 
but one that calls us to a standard of living out that gospel. So that when we sin against our own children, we must then respond in asking for forgiveness. Those of you in the workplace, we must never hold up the idea that we have it all put together. Or that we will never mess up. Or that we may never miscommunicate. Instead, we must be humble and seek a way to show people that the gospel has changed us. We must live in such a way that shows that we are going to be faithful to what we said. Paul knows that integrity is not an accident. And instead, instead of these negative characteristics, Paul moves to the positive. He says, we have been approved by God there in verse 4. This means they were tested, examined, and found worthy. They were approved to be entrusted, he says, by God himself. And God's entrusting comes with a responsibility to what? Protect and to guard the gospel over all other things. Why? Because they were not trying to do what? He says to please people. That is to gain their praise, but rather God's. Right? When we seek to please God over everyone else, we are to remain true to Him. And not even true to ourselves. We must remain true to Him. As I've told you multiple times, I live in a culture that wants to tell you to be true to yourself. No, God's Word calls us to be true to Him. Because He's the one who truly knows us. And because then He provides the power to be bold. Because His approval is what we need. Because it's His mission. And God and His gospel is our standard and our aim. But why? Notice these last few words. God who examines our hearts. We follow the God of life who knows everything we think and even knows our very hearts. He knows the center of who we are. He knows our, our actions and our feelings. He knows the very deepest part of who you are. So you cannot hide from Him. You may be able to trick. You may be able to show other people certain things, but you will never trick Him. God knows our motives and therefore we must remain true to Him. There is such a tight connection here between living righteously and the intervention of God in our lives and other people's lives. We must not disconnect what we believe again from how we live. There is accountability to the gospel. There is a standard to the gospel. And we must be willing to submit to that. That we hold God's word up and we, we give our lives to it. Not because we're going to be perfect. No, but because we're letting God's word and his standard begin to shape and begin to mold. And it begins to rub like sandpaper. Sandpaper, if you rub it on your arm, doesn't feel good. When it begins to rub off the impurities and it begins to wipe away and wash away all of our impure motives and all of our desires are not of God. And we begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's why we give ourselves to God's Word. That's why we have to submit to it. Right? There's an accountability to us as a church that we actually hold the gospel up and then we live to it. We hold each other. This is why we do church discipline. This is why we call each other to the gospel. Let me be very clear as well. There's this, in our time and place, it's really easy for someone to stand up here or to stand in a place over others and say, I'm God's man. I'm above all that. That's nonsense. Paul is saying absolutely not. 
My life was pure and holy. And it, it may be held up against the standard of God's word. And you may call me on it. May we never say that we are outside of God's standard. Instead, may we be people who submit to it gladly. Not because we're going to get it right all the time. But because we have a Savior who did. And now invites us into living this way. Paul and company modeled what it looked like to steward the gospel while pleasing God over other people. But Paul also gives us a second illustration. We should minister like a caring mother there in verse 5 through 8. We, we give ourselves away and not to be greedy. Look there at verse 5. Paul starts again with a negative. We, weren't, we didn't use flattering speech. This, this kind of speech was, was common in the first century. People would use it. Not that people were dumb or gullible, but that it was a way to try to trick people. They wanted to earn money and to say the things that people wanted to hear. The team did not just come up to the Thessalonians and say, hey, what you're doing, great job. Jesus is Lord, but keep doing what you're doing. No, that's not what he said. They held up the gospel and said, you now are called into this marvelous light, and you now get to experience it. And the team was also free of greedy motives, right? which is desire to have more and more money. But Paul was always upright in his dealings with money and above reproach. And so they neither tricked people to gain money, and they neither had the motive to try to gain money. And look there at the end of verse 5. The Thessalonians know this, and God is our witness. Paul here establishes two witnesses. We see this in the Old Testament. The, The Thessalonians and God. They are the two witnesses, and they know. God approves. He sees. And you see. You see our true motives. On top of that, they did not seek glory from people. Meaning they did not obtain or even demand the praise of others. Paul and his team were not greedy for money or for fame. They were others focused. They wanted the people that they served to be the focus of their ministry. So that they were not greedy. Instead, they were generous. So may we be like caring mothers who are generous. You see, they could have thrown around this idea, look there, of I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. I'm going to lay that card down. And I think what Paul is doing, he's using the royal we here. He says he's including Silas and Timothy. They're not apostles in the same way, but he's saying we together could have come in. Could have insisted on being treated a specific way. That he was special. That he had been commissioned by Christ. There's a story of of a youth pastor who took about 50 kids to McDonald's. And you know how, first of all, McDonald's is probably super slammed and not happy that they brought 50 teenagers up into their restaurant all at one time, but they brought them there anyways, and they all ordered, and and everybody's happy, and the youth pastor goes up, and he says, hey, uh, I I just brought all these people into your restaurant. You should should give me a free meal. And uh, obviously the restaurant don't really know what they did. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that this person thought that because I did this, I deserved something else. And used his title and position and authority to try to gain something. That's the exact opposite of what Paul does. Paul says, instead, we didn't even want to be a burden to you. We didn't even want to be a burden to you. 
Now, this word for burden is a tied to this idea of economic or financial burden, like paying taxes. Now, Paul and his team were not a burden, as in they could have assisted on the church paying for and supporting them during their time together. We also know that Paul speaks in other places that the church is supposed to pay for their leaders in the time that's given to them. So Paul has a right. He could have said, literally, you must pay for us to do this. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he knows that they worked. Paul and his team worked to support themselves. They did not want to depend on this young church to support them. They didn't want to be a burden to them. And look back down at verse 7. Look down at verse 7. See that phrase? We were gentle among you as a nurse nurses her own children. Now, let me, we're going to stop for just a moment. We're going to take a pause because I think it's important. I want you to notice what's going on. Okay, When you read in your Bibles, you should see a little A that's marked there on the word gentle. This means that there's a tiny note at the bottom of your Bible. And I think it's important for us to talk about this because I want you to be able to trust your Bibles. Okay, so at the bottom, it most likely says uh, gentle could be translated as infants. And you're like, well, that's kind of odd. I'm not sure what to do with that. But here's the deal. The oldest copies of the Bible have the word infant. Now, in the Greek language, infant and uh, gentle are one letter off. They're one letter off. It doesn't really change uh, what's happening here. But the oldest copies, I think the word should be infant. Right? And here's what, here's what he means. Infants, babies, are gentle, yes. But, but why? Because they can't do much. They, they don't come in and they literally can't throw their weight around. Or they can't come into the room and say, boom, give me that bottle of milk. Now they can cry for it, but they can't throw their weight around. So they, they're not able to do this. So think about maybe a two or three year old. He sees that toy. He, he wants that toy very badly. He doesn't come in and persuade the other two-year-old. What? That's a wonderful dress you have on today. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't come in and say, he doesn't go to his mother and say, mother, you are beautiful today. You are such a good mother. I am so thankful for you. Can you please get me that toy from her? He doesn't, a three-year-old, two-year-old can't do that, can they? So they can't throw their way. They can't persuade or trick or flatter. I think that goes along with the argument here that Paul's making. And so they are not able to throw around their weight to gain something. Now, Paul does this very easily. It's hard for us, but he changes in and out of the illustration. Look there, he continues. We were like infants among you. No better yet, we were like nursing mothers. Think about it. Mothers, especially the new moms who have young children who are feeding their babies regularly, care tenderly for them and love them deeply and want them to grow. They know what's best for them. And the children understand this as well. When Graham gets hurt, who does he call for? He calls for his mother because he trusts her. He knows exactly where that she's going to be there. Because she's built that relationship with them. They trust their mothers and they have great confidence in them. And Paul goes on to to talk about what does this caring motherhood look like? We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives. Paul cares so deeply for the church. He longs for them. He's committed to them. He's so generous. He gives his whole being. 
Because while they were pleased, they were determined to share with them. And notice, notice really quickly what he shares with them. Not only the gospel, we gave you the gospel. We preached it, we proclaimed it, we taught it, we taught what it meant to be in Christ. We taught what it meant to be a part of God's plan and God's work. But then notice, it's really easy for us in our Western minds to stop right there and say, look, Paul preached the gospel. He, he gave them exactly what they needed. There's something else. They, gave, they even gave their own lives. This idea of their own selves, the whole person, everything they have, Paul offered it to them. They gave their lives to this young church family. Long hours, got little sleep. Just ask some young mothers. Those of you who've had children, you know there's long hours and little sleep. That's what Paul's saying. We gave our whole selves to you. Why? He starts where he began. Look there, he finishes. Because you had become dear to us. They are beloved and find a new family in Christ. They may be outcasts from their town, from their people, from their own uh, city, but they have found a new family in Christ. Church, let me be very clear. Discipleship, Christ says, is the invitation to lay down our lives, pick up the cross, and follow Him. The gospel's call is a call to give ourselves away. And that's the point Paul's making here. Discipleship is costly and sacrificial. It's long, hard, arduous work. My desire is for us to build a strong church family here. A healthy Covenant Hope Church. But you cannot build a church, you cannot grow a family on consumerism. Because consumers only know me and they don't know we. This means that we must give ourselves to build a family based on sacrifice. Because is not, that not what all families are built on? That the mother will give her own body to have a child. And a father may go and work and give his life so he can provide for his family. And the mother may care for the children and give away her own time that she could do things so these children grow up strong and healthy. And the dads come home after work and we play with our kids and we give them the time. Is building a strong family not costly and sacrificial? It takes the same kind of work here at the church. It takes the same kind of effort in our lives together. And I want you to notice the importance of the both sides of the gospel coin. I read this in an article, an article uh, recently. Effective discipleship demonstrates the importance of both information and relationship. Discipleship is both sharing life and gospel. We're called to share the content of the gospel in the context of relationships that reflect God's relationship with us. If we only share the information, our discipleship will be academic. And if we only share our lives, it will be anemic. There will be no foundation. May we give ourselves to discipleship of both knowing the gospel and knowing each other. Giving away ourselves for the good of other people. And finally, let me say to some of you in the room, you have a desire for vocational ministry. You want to give your lives to vocational ministry work. I want you to see the deep concern here. 
that Paul has for these people. Paul cares deeply about them and he ministers to them. He's not talking about preaching on a stage. He's not talking about getting a big name for himself. No, he talks about giving himself away. Vocational ministry is about caring deeply and giving away yourself so that people can know that Jesus loves them and that you love them. May this be the kind of men that we raise up to be pastors here and all over the world. This is not about skill, but it's about the formation of character and love. And our ministry pleases God when we give ourselves away for the care of others, especially those in our church family. But Paul, he moves on to the third illustration. We should minister like an encouraging father in verses 9 through 12. And as I told you, fathers give themselves away. They work hard. Fathers are to work hard. The Thessalonians could absolutely remember there in verse 9 everything that Paul and Silas and Timothy did. It would have been rememberable because the apostles, these God's messengers, they worked. And this means, uh, what he means here by labor and hardship, they did manual labor. They were in the marketplace. Paul was a tent maker, leather maker by trade. His father taught him that. And it was difficult, long hours and exhausting. So they did the work of a job, a normal job, and then they, on top of that, ministered to these people. They did this so that they would not be a burden again to the church financially and to provide a way for the gospel to continue to be preached. We have our own example of this. Pastor Ryan works a full-time job every week and gives himself to helping our church function and provides shepherding. He has you, him and Megan have you in their home. They do things for our church that no one sees. He works hard. I go to bed pretty much at 10 o'clock every night. You can ask my wife. But there are lots of times when I get emails from Ryan because he's up working past 10 o'clock. The work of ministry is hard and arduous. It's not easy. And Paul says they were not only working in the marketplace, but they were also preaching the gospel. They integrated the gospel into their everyday life. The gospel motivated them to work hard. They didn't just see uh, pulling some leather out and making a tent. They didn't just see that as, oh, I just got to do this to get to the real ministry. No, they saw that as a way for them to actually give back and to care for the people in the town, in the city. And when they gave them a really good uh, tent, they were to say, hey, here's this for you. I hope this serves your family well. They were able to show that we care. And then they were able to say, hey, do you know why we make the best tents in the town? Because our God has given us a gift that we, make, we want to share with you that's even better than this. They loved the church, but they also loved the city that they gave themselves to. And Paul, he continues in verse 10. He says, you are our witnesses. And so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. The Thessalonians can confirm Paul's statements because they saw it with their own eyes. They saw the righteousness that these, these men lived with. They experienced it. They could attest to it, and so could God. It is the hard work and desire of Paul, Silas, and Timothy that they give the Thessalonians every opportunity to what? Believe that they may believe the gospel, both from the words and their actions. How are you giving yourself away for the work of the gospel? How are you giving yourself in your workplace 
to be a model that the gospel has changed. And we're not complaining. We're not gossiping. We're following. We're doing what we're asked. We're going above and beyond that we can show the gospel to people and hopefully have a chance to like say to them, hey, yeah, this, this is not the greatest job in the world, but let me just tell you, we are able to do this because we love you and because God loves you. Why does Paul, why does he do this? Why does he work hard like this? Not only does, he, does a father work hard, a father wants his children to walk worthy. Look there in verse 11, you see this. You see the Thessalonians, they already know the truth and how to respond to it. But like a father, Paul comes alongside them to remind them Right, and don't we all need reminders? Let me tell you, I walk around my house now like a true father. Cut off the lights, please. Cut the lights off. I don't want to pay to light the whole neighborhood. Or shut the door. I'm not here to, to cool the whole neighborhood, right? Just like a father. Now I'm, I'm reminded, hey, let's, let's cut these lights off. But Paul's got a better focus. Let me remind you of the gospel. Let me show you. Let me help you toward Holiness. There's an ethic to live and a God to worship. And again, our lives must match what we say and what we do. This is what he means by walking worthy of God. He gives them, them an example and a goal to obtain. Right, Paul uses the illustration of a father to show how a father would do it and how he really ministered. He encourages the young church, but with care and concern, consoling them with the hope of Jesus. Then he implores them and persuades them and insists on them living out their holiness only found in the hope of Jesus Christ. He doesn't beat it over their heads. He doesn't demand it. But he comforts and encourages. And then he, then he prods. Then he insists and he pushes them out just to step and say, walk worthy of the gospel that you've received. Notice how he does it too. He says, each one of you. They did it corporately, they did, they did it individually, they did large gatherings, small, they did any chance they got, he encouraged them like a father. Hey, son, daughter, let me remind you of the gospel you have and the call that you have to live. Paul knew that they needed a multifaceted approach, that they needed the gospel to be shown and encouraged in them. But the question may be in our minds, why does this matter? Why does Paul think this is important? Look there as he ends uh, in verse 12. God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You're to walk worthy. Why? Because God calls you into his kingdom and glory. We have a future destination, a future destiny, and this hope is shaped. It shapes our future, how we live now, because we can experience the kingdom of God now. No, this kingdom is not a physical kingdom yet, but it will be. The reality of God coming back to restore His world and His kingdom is happening. We have a hope of that. And now we may live lives that proclaim that hope and proclaim the gospel that now you can be invited into. God's kingdom is coming. We know it. We've experienced the transformation in our own lives and we will one day experience it both spiritually and physically. We please God and help others live out the gospel by encouraging them like a father. And we be pleasing to God in the same way. And Paul, he he ends here in verses 13 through 16, and we see this last illustration. Minister like a confident herald. Minister like a confident herald. And heralds, what do they have? They have something to say. They have a message. 
They have a gospel. Minister like a confident herald with a transforming gospel. Why should we be confident? Because we have a transforming gospel. And Paul, now he returns to the focus off of, kind of off of himself and his team, now to them. He reminds them of how they received the word of God. And once again, this causes Thanksgiving to well up inside of Paul because he knows what has taken place in these lives and in these people. God supernaturally worked for their proclamation. Paul knew that when he spoke, God was going to work. And that's what was needed. And Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians receiving the gospel. Therefore, he provides his underlying assumption to us. Which is what? God must work supernaturally to open the hearts of people that need to hear the gospel. God has to work for us to even realize that we need it. Must we not then pray to God to open people's hearts? Must we not ask God to go and work and to open the eyes of people who may reject Him ten times? And we still ask God, would you please open their hearts? Some of us don't do evangelism because we're scared. And we're being honest, we're scared, we're afraid. We don't want to be rejected, we don't know what to say. Legitimate things. Some of us, uh, it's not that we're scared. It's just that we don't care. If we're being really honest, church, it's not because we're not scared. It's because we don't care enough. Church, both of these things are from a lack of prayer. It's from a lack of prayer. Our, our, our prayer goal this year is that God will save people in 2022. And we're going to keep asking God to do that. But if you know what? As I prepared this week, I was extremely convicted. Why? Because do we pray enough for God to save people? If God answered every prayer request that you've had, He he came to you and said, it's done. How many people would be saved in that moment? Church, I am asking not of you, I'm asking of all of us, and myself included, may we be a people who pray because the world is dark and there's sin blinding people and we will never get the point across. We will never persuade enough people. We will never argue them into heaven. God must open their eyes and their hearts. And until we believe that, then we will not see God work in a way that we are asking Him to. Church, we must We must, in the same way that Paul recognized and Paul worked, and we must recognize that God has to open hearts. And my prayer to you today, my prayer with you, is that we may be a people known by prayer. That we may ask God to work in people that we don't expect Him to. In people that have rejected Him. In people who say they have it all together. In people who think they don't need a thing. May we pray them into heaven together. This is Paul's response. This is Paul. what Paul does. Why? Look at what he says. He says they've received it. Not as some human message. They welcomed it as their own. And as God's word. It's God's word all the way back in chapter 1. It's God's word. Which is the gospel message. The gospel is not some myth or story, but a message by which the king of the universe comes into someone's heart and he transforms them. 
And he shows them what it looks like to live worthy, to be in right relationship. This is how we know that we need a divinely inspired God to work in a divinely inspired message. He needs it. We need it. Paul needed it. Look at it. He says, and it's worked effectively in you. Paul knows that the power of the gospel has worked as he preaches it because he sees the lives. He sees them come. Remember, last week, they turn from idols and worship the living and true God. That's how we know that God's worked. When we forsake idols and we pursue Him over all things. He knows it. He even knows the personal transformation that it provides. Paul was a murderer. He was a terrorist. He killed Christians. But Paul has now been brought into the family of God. He's experienced his transformation and he sees it in their lives. Paul knows because he's experienced it himself. Church, the gospel is about laying down our goals and our preferences and our dreams and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we submit to Jesus, we then receive power to walk worthy because we have a transforming gospel. But we must be reminded often, don't we? And now what Paul does, he says, you have a transforming gospel. And he's going to contrast it to Israel here as he concludes. He, what he does is he holds up a transformative gospel and also a, a timely gospel. Look at verse 14. The Thessalonians, they imitate the churches in Judea by what? By suffering. Just as they did from the Jews. Like the churches in Judea, they suffered at the hands of the Jews. They become like them by participating in their suffering. And particularly suffering from their own people. Paul makes it clear that persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal process, a normal step in the journey. We must come to expect it. But the power of the gospel is clearly seen in people who experience this kind of persecution and stand firm and press on. Church, when we suffer... When we experience persecution, we join all of our brothers and sisters around the world who may be experiencing the same thing in a lesser or more significant way. We join them. And we join the saints of old who gave their lives so that we could have the gospel today. And I want you to think for just a moment. If the people of Israel, if the people of the covenant of God acted this way towards Paul and the churches and the Thessalonians, then think about how the Gentiles are going to respond who have never heard of God's kindness, never heard of God's love. We shouldn't expect anything else. Egyptians, in the Old Testament, they acted like Egyptians. Here in our context, people who have never heard the gospel Sinners are going to act like sinners. We shouldn't expect anything less. But notice how Paul explains this Jewish opposition. He says they killed Jesus and the prophets. We know that God sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus, he's the one who had the power, the authority to give his life. But we also know that, that the, the way the New Testament talks about it, the Jews killed Jesus. And to both ends, it's a part of God's plan. 
and they persecute us. This is presently, right? Paul's saying we are persecuted as well. And it's just, they, they take a violent action against God's plan, right? They say, Paul says they displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. What Paul does is he lifts up the Thessalonians and lifts up their eyes, and he says, let, let, me, let me give you the full picture. You are suffering, absolutely, but you suffer like the churches in Judea. Let me, let me broaden your context for just a moment. Church, may we be a people not confined here. We are focused on Wake Forest Youngsville and Franklinton, but may we not be confined here. May we actually see stories around the world. There are lots of options, lots of tools out there that we can see about people groups and, and, and prayer requests from all across the world from people who are under persecution. May we not be focused just on our own lives. May we actually see, as Paul does, he lifts our eyes above just our circumstances. Why is that important? Because just like what the Jews did, they, they displeased God by blocking the gospel advance, right, to the Gentiles or to anyone. They put up obstacles in the way of the Christians from speaking, from evangelizing the Gentiles. Right, and this opposition is to stand directly against God and His mission and to even stand against God Himself. But there's something that's important to remember. Look at what the result is. They are filling up their sins and wrath has overtaken them. This is some awkward phrasing here, but what it means is there's, there's a coming wrath against those who stand against God and His mission. Those who reject Him, there is a sure and steady, prominent wrath coming against them. There's nothing they can do about it. If you reject Jesus Christ, you will face God's wrath. God does not ignore or forget the injustices of the world. He doesn't forget how you've been wronged. He doesn't forget how you've been persecuted. He doesn't forget what's happened to you. He knows. And He acts. He does not forget the suffering of His people. So God does it. In His timing, He works. Because there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Those who reject Him will face this wrath. But those who who submit to Him as Lord will escape it. Just like the Thessalonians. Church, we don't come here today as people who are scared. We don't come here afraid. Because if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you are now a part of His family. And you now are a part of the people that He fights for. You now are a people who escape His wrath. You're now a people who now get to participate with Him. Jesus has offered this to us if we believe. It is only in the grace of God that He would offer His own Son in our place. The Gospel tells us of the wrath that's to come, but then provides the hope that's necessary to anyone who will believe and accept the transformation that God provides. To Paul's ministry, to the church, what he does is he talks about this is, this is all that we do. He gives us four beautiful illustrations and ways that we can, we can grow as a church family. But at the end of the day, this ministry is based on hope. That there's a God who loves you and a God who's given his own son for you. And by the way, he's going to right all the wrongs and you will not have to experience that. 
but you will be brought into his family, into joy, into hope. Would you pray with me? God, we are a people who need you, a people who long for you to work. There are so many things here. God, as the Apostle Paul wrote your words to the Thessalonians, so many things that we could grab onto, so many things that we may be convicted about, but God, there's hope. There's hope that you will right every wrong and that we will be a part of that. I pray, that God, that we will keep our focus, our context, our, our, our eyes above just our circumstances, that we may remember what you are doing so then we may minister in a way that's pleasing to you and that we may be transformed by the gospel that we proclaim and to let people and to see people transformed that accept that gospel. God, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.